Did you know that about 3 million Americans suffer from glaucoma? Glaucoma is a progressive disease of the eye caused by an asymptomatic, unnoticeable increase in eye pressure that can damage the optic nerve. If left undiagnosed or untreated, glaucoma can significantly disrupt your quality of life and even cause blindness. Though there is no cure for glaucoma, there are treatment options available to control it and slow disease progression. Some common ways to treat glaucoma include eye drops, conventional surgery, and a state-of-the-art microinvasive glaucoma surgery known as MIGS. MIGS is a proven option to reduce eye pressure that can provide 24-7 control over your glaucoma by using micro-devices that can't be seen or felt. Also, unlike more invasive glaucoma surgeries, MIGS is a safer, simpler option with a faster recovery time. Understanding how to take action against your glaucoma early on with a MIGS device is an important piece to navigating your treatment journey to slow disease progression. And now a revolutionary MIGS device is available to treat your glaucoma, iStent Infinite. For those who have failed prior medical and surgical treatment, iStent Infinite is an implantable alternative to eye drops that uses three micro-sized stents that your doctor places inside your eye, designed to create open pathways to maximize drainage, relieve pressure, and slow your disease progression. If your doctor recommended iStent Infinite to you, it could be a great option to finally lower the number of eye drops you take and decrease your eye pressure. If you have failed a prior glaucoma surgery, ask your doctor if iStent Infinite is right for you. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Not multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part three of my interview with Dr. Chris May. In part three, Dr. May discusses new surgical advances in glaucoma. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube Movies and Shows. I think the studies show that between 50 and 90% of the patients are not compliant with their eye drops. There was a study done a number of years ago where they put a little chip in yeah, the, little. The, the drop and the dropper and the patients always took it the day before they came to see the eye doctor, but about 50% of the people, 50% of the time, they're not taking the drop as prescribed, even though they know that they could go blind if they don't take it. And they did a very similar study with people who have had heart attacks and they're on 
medication after after the heart attack and they're in the hospital hooked up to all these things and a year later 50 percent is not taking their heart medicine even though they had a heart attack and they almost died and that shows that goes to this study that was done by the nih at albstead county that showed that despite being treated with topical glaucoma drops about 13 percent of the people uh will go blind in one eye and four percent will go blind in both eyes and i think it just shows that is it compliance is it the drops don't work better work good enough and it's probably a big part of it is compliance and then when you add drops you're adding one drop to another you know the 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 carbon the the uh the prostaglandin drops that we talked about you know will drop the pressure about 30 percent the other one's a little bit less, but when you add medication, there's been a number of trials, the COMPASS trial, the Horizon and COMPASS trial. What, what does it show us when we add drops? Uh, because about 50% of the people have to be on more than one drop because with one drop, the pressure isn't being lowered enough. And that's what we're going by, or we're going by progression of those tests that we talked about with the GPA, the visual fields progressing, the nerve fiber layer is progressing, or we're looking at the optic nerve and we're seeing it changing and, or we're seeing little hemorrhages off the optic nerve and we feel we have to do something. So if you could talk about what does it do when we add another medication, so we're down about 30% with the medication, or the first med about 30, 33%, what happens when we add the other medications? So we do have that, there's the diminishing returns effect there, right? So then the more medicine we add, the second one doesn't do quite as much. So now with the exception of those weirdo little carbonic, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors, for the most part, what we add next starts to get a little bit harder to do or a little bit less effect. And it is inherently harder to do. It is also, once there's more drops, if I ask you to do something once, that's easy to comply with relative to if I ask you to do something three times and do it perfectly every single time. So there's, a, I think, a place there where there's a there's a dosing and a, a physical response factor. So for instance, let's say I put you on a medicine that decreases your aqueous production, and I put you on another medicine that decreases your aqueous production. Well, they're both working in the same spot. So mechanism matters, pharmacology matters, that's that's on our choices. But then there is the compliance factor in there that starts to matter as well. So if it's a midday, that's hard to do. Or what if this patient has trouble with their nighttime drop or, or things like that? So multi-med, and like you said, about 50% of patients are on more than one drop. So that's a huge burden. And, and so that starts to, to get into there where we're getting more side effect as well. So the more medicine eye. we have... People get dry eyes from the side effects. Their eyes get exactly. Dry. So that yeah, the preservative that's in that medicine that that keeps it safe in the bottle. Well, now you're not getting one drop of that a day. You might be getting five drops of that a day. So it starts to get irritating to the eye. The medicine itself may have some issues to the eye. We talked about some create irritation to work. So that can be a bit of a problem. I think another place here where compliance comes through, particularly in multi-med patients is what I call the flossing factor, just like you talked about the day before my dental appointment. I am I am a model citizen. Uh, you know, three days later, you know, we'll see what I do. But that flossing factor can really throw us off clinically because that patient for the day before their visit in the morning of their visit, they're compliant. So you measure their pressure and you're going, you are wonderful. We're at 12 you know, we were trying to get to 14. I'm so pleased with our new technique. It's working great. 
And this is a place where it started to get interesting when our electronic prescribing systems can bring us back how often a patient is refilling a medicine. And yes, patients, we are uh, watching. And uh, it's kind of like dad, we, you know, you're always going to get busted somehow. We start looking at it and going, you have only refilled this medicine three times in the last year. Now, the bottle lasts, depending on what it is, you know, we can figure out by how many drops it is. So on this prostaglandins, you know, a name brand might last 45, 50 days, you know, on a, on a generic, we're getting 28 to 35 days. So either someone has come up with a miracle bottle that could last three months, or maybe we're not using it quite as consistently as we thought. I think that also plays in somewhat to that normotensive glaucoma. In some cases, we think the patient is normotensive because we are getting good measurements when we measure it in the clinic. But then we go back home and either we get busy or life happens or medicines happen. Or honestly, we saw this happen where patients just lost their insurance for a little while and they're just off the reservation because they couldn't figure out what to do cost-wise. And that is a place where if you're a patient, reach out to your doctor. If you've had situations in life that have caused something, we will find a way to get you what you need to get to do. There's there's these the pharmaceutical companies do a great job. So we have, you know, samples, there's ways to get it. There's inexpensive medicines that no, they may not be the perfect thing that we need, but the most frustrating thing is having a patient that shows back up two years without follow-up much, much worse and goes, sorry, doc, I got laid off. I didn't have insurance for a while, so I couldn't come in. So you come in, I'm worried about your eyes. We'll worry about money later. So let's move over to, uh, to surgical procedures, uh, Let's start off with the whole concept again of interventional glaucoma. What are the goals? Where 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 are we going in the future with this? Well, that is a very big question and a super exciting one. I think number one, if we look at interventional glaucoma and why it's important, we talked about how the technology and testing is coming into and starting to match up with our treatment abilities. Our surgical ability and the skill sets of our surgeons, the technology supporting them has gotten so much better. So, you know, one of the first things that we saw was a eye stent, a tiny little stent that we could place into the eye while we were doing another surgery that could help. That was, if you want to ask where we're going, that is that whole process completely jumped off once that ability came into, into play. Because then this surgery, instead of being a big laborious dangerous, unpleasant, lots of follow-ups, uncomfortable process turned into something that was much more manageable. So then that means now from a glaucoma management standpoint, we can pick up our surgical tools much sooner in the process. So we're not waiting for the disease to get worse before we react. But on top of that, and we're not having to stack up all these medicines and just yell at patients to use more medicines, we can look at this patient and their risk factors and their sink you know, what, how does your body work? What is it responding to? A, a great example would be talking about patient. We talked about that SLT laser, the SLT, when we're doing it, it cleans out that drainage system. Well, that laser is pretty effective, but sometimes isn't. Uh, particularly for my patients, the, the more heavier pigmented mesh works. So that laser works by helping clean out the pigment and the mesh work to work. But there's something about some of our patient base, depending on where they are, it may be so heavy that that laser, I don't get the same effect that I was hoping out of, out of it. Well, typically, that in its own ways, diagnostic. Go ahead. We go with, with medication and if it doesn't work, then we go to SLT. And if that doesn't work, we go to a filter. 
Uh, so let's let's talk about SLT for a minute. Yeah. And also, I do want to talk about fluctuating vision, like a fluctuating pressure, like mm -hmm. fluctuating sugar. You know, the more the, the, the pressure goes up and down, the more damage we're going to get. And the same with glucose. As a diabetic, the more their blood sugar goes up and down, the more likely we're going to get diabetic retinopathy. So we want to try to keep the pressure pretty on an even keel if we can. Uh, so t talk to me about SLT. I know in my hands, you know, with the surgeons I work with, I've been disappointed really with SLT. It hasn't really worked as good as I've hoped. And one of the things I've noticed with SLT is our surgeons do the SLT and then they take the patient off all the medication and the patient comes back and their pressure's 35. It's like, what are you doing? And, and this happens a lot. So I want to know what your opinion of SLT, how good it works. Maybe, you know, in New Jersey, it doesn't work as good as it, it works where you guys are, but, you know. I got to tell you, in Mississippi, it doesn't work either. It's not that it doesn't work. I shouldn't say it that way. I've had similar experiences. So the SALT and LIGHT were two studies done on SLT. And I think they gave us great data and showed us that we could keep that patient level and that lasers are always present which I think means if the patient was non-compliant and jumping up and down, and by the way, 100% agree, hypertension, the more your blood pressure pops up and down, the harder it is on your, your vasculature. Blood sugar, the more your sugar pops up and down, the harder it is in your body. Another microvascular disease, glaucoma, the more your pressure jumps up and down, the worse it's going to be for your eye. So we want to get level. But I was a little disappointed, and I think maybe some of my patients are like yours, where whether it's just different pigment or something like that, we weren't getting the response we wanted out of the laser. Um, not that we weren't getting a response. We just, it wasn't able to do what we needed to do. And I was actually, uh, I read a single center study of this. This is years and years ago, about 20 years ago. And we said SLT was roughly equal to a second medicine. So, you know, we talked about how the first medicine works a little better. The second one, not quite as good. So the SLT kind of fits that spot, not as good as the first one, but it adds in. Now it's always present. And I don't think we need to discount that effect. That is a huge benefit, but it kind of tells us something about that drain diagnostically when it doesn't work. So you're, you know, you, you treat the patient with laser and you go, Oh, your pressure is awesome. Let's take you off all your meds. And the pressure flies back up. That told us something. That means that that part of the drain, that first part of the drain where the spongy mesh work is, is probably not their primary resistance point. That patient's sink isn't draining because further down in the line someplace. And I think that does tell me when I want to not necessarily pick up more medicines, which was probably my answer a few years ago. I'm going to use that to decrease suppression and, and use uveous scleral outflow. So I'm going to use this medicine and that medicine. Instead, it helps me choose surgical options a little sooner. I actually use it as a diagnostic. So non-response to SLT tells me that I probably have resistance in the, the collection space behind the mesh work and headed back into the bloodstream. And we have procedures now that can do that rather than just having that little stent that we're putting in one spot. Now we can do procedures to open up the entire canals. We have multiple stents that we can use in other spots. And that's where minimally invasive glaucoma surgery, MIGS, is an absolutely exciting area to move forward here because we're able to surgically step in to get the results we need to get that level pressure to do it long term. 
but do it without it being a major negative effect for the patient, which means once we can pick this tool up earlier, we can pick this tool up earlier, right? So we talked about the cells that are the bad apple. If you get that bad apple out of the bunch, then it can't kill the cells around it. So, and if the surgery is not so bad, now I can pick this up earlier. So rather than waiting until this patient is much further down the line and their disease process, we're able to step in and go, hey, let's do something. Now, in the last few years, this was kind of limited to only being while we were doing cataract surgery, surgically speaking. So SLT we could do, but if it didn't do what we wanted it to do and the patient didn't need a cataract surgery, we couldn't do these other procedures. So the stars had to kind of align for it. And that's gotten better. You know, before we go in depth in MIGS, which I want to do, I want to ask you one question about SLT. You know, they've talked about SLD as being uh, first-line therapy for years, but it never caught on as first-line therapy. And I always wondered, why didn't it catch on as first-line therapy? Is it because it didn't work the way it was supposed to? You know, I know sometimes it does work like a second medication. It might bring the pressure down, but the patient has to stay on their medications. And it might work for a while, a couple of years, a little bit. But I've never seen it work great, but that's just me. I mean, you know, everybody has to go to that's watching this. You have to go to your own doctor and you have to see your own eye doctor. We're just having a conversation. But if it was so great, why aren't people doing it as first-line therapy? I, I actually, I agree with you in experience, but also agree that it does fit the first-line therapy in a lot of modes. So I think we're seeing it used more just because access is better. So if you are in rural Oklahoma somewhere, and it's very difficult for you to get to any eye doctor, I think they went from no option to an SLT option. It's better for them than, than nothing. I do think my clinical results have been very similar to yours. I found it additive, not necessarily a first line. And maybe maybe I need to start picking it up sooner. Maybe I need to move it way up in, in my treatment modality before those patients are starting to have loss. But I, I just, I don't think it's going to be the panacea. Its predecessor, ALT, uh, argon laser trabeculoplasty. Now that one, I, we know why it didn't catch on. Every now and then when we were, we were actually burning the tissue in that sponge to open it up, well, sometimes we got scars. And so you went in to help this patient and the patient came out with a pressure higher than what they went in with. That was a very negative experience for everyone involved. SLT doesn't seem to have the negative experience, uh, but it does seem to have in some cases, just not much of an experience. And, and I, we've looked at laser energy area that we're treating technique, a lot of other factors in there. And I don't think there's any just one way to say, oh, well, if we were doing this, SLT would become the best thing ever. Uh, and, and I appreciate that's something where I think we can, studies are wonderful. I do appreciate the value of having it where we're making clinical decisions based on evidence-based medicine. But statistics can work in two ways. You know, they're like light posts. So they can light the way down the street or they can be the thing that the drunk leans against to try to hold him up, you know? And if all we're doing is saying, well, a study said this is good, so that's what's good for you. That to me is the opposite of that interventional mindset attitude. So because it, it means if I'm interventional and I'm looking at this patient, I'm not gonna do just one thing every time. I need to look at them as a system. And I think SLT is a tool in that, but unfortunately it's not as easy as saying, Everybody, the first time I see anything, I get it. We're going to do an SLT on them 
And then if things progress, I'm going to use a drop. It is uh, it is a place where I've got to monkey with the recipe a little bit more, kind of like the ribs. I've got to I've got to know when to smoke them a little longer and when to take them off early. And it is it's unfortunate because honestly, SLT is a great procedure, a safe procedure, and a pretty easy one to have done relative to those bigger surgeries. So it can be a little bit diagnostic. It can have benefit, but I'm like you. I just it did it wasn't a home run for me. Macu Health, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. So let's go to MIGS. Explain what MIGS, MIBS, what are, what are these? What are these? I know it was coined, the term was coined by Ike Abed. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 MIGS, uh, there's, there's the eye stent by Glacos. There's the uh, trebe, trebectome. Uh, tell me the difference. Let's, let's start off. What are MIGs? Nice and simply. And uh, what does it stand for again? And and what are the different kinds? Oh, it's a, and MIGs is another place where we can get into, if you want to be very bored at a dinner party, ask a bunch of eye doctors what they think about MIGs and what is MIGs and what isn't MIGs. Uh, surgeons can get into like, you know, battle royales over what's not a MIGs and what is a MIGs. Not very interesting battle royals, by the way. This is this is what we're passionate about for no good reason. But you know, so MIGS stands for that we can agree on. And that's one thing that's nice when we can go, if if we're arguing about it, go ask Dr. Ahmed. It was what it's only been like 10 or 15 years ago when we first started talking about MIGS. So it is amazing to have a procedure where we can go look and go, this was the first time somebody talked about it was in this paper, but or in this article. But uh, minimally invasive glaucoma surgery. I like that MIGS term because it does fit a lot of things. Now we can argue about what's in the bucket. And I think that's an academic discussion. Uh, MIBS, microinvasive bleb surgery. Uh, let's kind of put that within the MIGS spectrum and, and kind of cast it aside because I think those arguments, we can get so far down the line that we're missing the point. Within any of these, what we're not talking about is big, heavy-duty filtration surgery or trabeculectomy. So in the past, our glaucoma specialist walked around with basically two hammers. One of them was a pretty heavyweight hammer, and the other one was a sledgehammer. And now, trabeculectomy was a pretty significant surgery that we created a completely new path for flow to come out through that eye. So we've been talking about the drainage system. It's basically just sort of going through and knocking a hole in the side and letting it drain from that direction. And then the sledgehammer was looking at shunts or, or larger valves that go in. And that's basically thinking of the cardiovascular model there, kind of like bypassing the whole nine yards. Those surgeries were pretty involved. Because of that, we kept them at the very end of the spectrum. Because of that, we had a problem. Uh, actually, a glaucoma specialist uh, that was in at UT, uh, Dr. Peter Netland and I were having a conversation about a patient one time. And he said, please, if you only do one thing for me, like, I can't add axons. I can't put nerves back in this eye. So we wait till this patient so far down the line and go, okay, now we're going to have to do glaucoma surgery. Well, we've set them up for failure. The surgery itself is rough. The eye might not make it through it. So being a little more interventional there was what he was asking me. And this is 15 or 20 years ago. But my problem was, is I'm going, but that surgery is so hard on this patient that we don't want to do it until we have to do it. MIGS is the answer to that for both patient and doctor. 
because it's able to step in and without being so invasive. So let's use our bypass example. Without cracking the chest and doing the quadruple bypass, we're able to go in and open up the flow where we need it to be to get the heart working again. And that's, I think, a beautiful spot where I stint fit that because it even used our terms. So we're thinking it the same way, being able to do multiple stints. So, and as we approach, you know, being able to have three stints in place means the more we can do, the better we can do. I think having the other techniques, you're talking about trabectome, there's Kahook dual blade, there's uh, Omni. As we're looking at what these tools do, they, they are tools that help surgeons perform these procedures. So then they're going in and they're opening up that drainage system. So if you've used a, a, a sink a drain auger, so they're going beyond and behind that meshwork and opening that up and those collector channels that are behind that and opening those up, or even taking off the top of that sponge, cutting an opening in it so that it'll let the fluid through. MIGS is all of those procedures. And I think depending on when you listen to this, this recording, the one thing I can tell you is the MIGS definition when you're listening to this is different than the one that you and I are talking about right now. It's changing that fast. These tools are coming out absolutely constantly because we're getting better and better and better and better. The good news is all of these new options open up the world of interventional glaucoma. And it's why this all connects back into each other. The why the pressures relate to the testing, relate to symptoms, relate to treatment, relate to MIGs versus the more aggressive treatments. No matter what, what we want to do is intervene and create a specialized rubric that makes sure that this patient's pressure and nerve are, are where they need to be to keep them functional, happy, and seeing everything that they need to see, whether it's not falling or whether it's just making sure that we stabilize their vision loss where it is. It's all interconnected. That puts a lot of, frankly, responsibility on eye care providers because now we have to really up our communication. You said it yourself. You're talking about your, your glaucoma surgeon you're working with. They, they do a procedure. They pull them off all the meds. Well, then you're handed back a problem compared to when we really have to step up our communication at a time where we're all struggling with our, you know, we're trying to keep office staff, trying to keep everybody happy, trying to not work us all into the ground, trying to not make patients wait forever. We, we've got you know, bills to pay, equipment to buy, everything to have happen that keeps a medical office running. And then we also have to find ways to communicate with each other to make sure that I send a message to you that doesn't say, uh, take care of this patient. And you're going, take care of their what? Was this a cataract or a glaucoma or both? Or what am I doing? So MIGS, especially when it was in that little space where it would only fit in certain moments, was very tricky because the patient had to be going in for glaucoma or cataract surgery anyway for us to get this glaucoma procedure added in. But it was honestly easier because that fit for your glaucoma specialist. You knew when you were referring that patient in, this is cataract and something else. Standalone MIGS, meaning we're doing a minimally invasive glaucoma surgery without it being when we're going in and doing cataract surgery. And that could be because we're putting in a Durista, that could be because we're, we're doing a procedure, whichever choice that this is, it being able to stand on its own means we have to communicate much better. And that's a place where we're all busy and frankly, over-communicated. We've got so many texts, so many communications, so many emails that we need to be able to make sure we're able to advocate for our patient and hand patients over to make sure that from a primary care optometrist to a secondary tertiary care ophthalmologist, or depending on how this is working, this has to be perfect 
because the patient's sight's at risk here. And as we intervene earlier, we got to get a little better at those communications back and forth. And it is it is tricky in its responsibility, but the payoff of adopting that mindset and doing it well is absolutely revolutionary. And why not do it standalone? Why isn't it only 10% standalone, 90% it's utilized as a combination with cataract surgery? That is an outstanding question as well. I think the first reason that we don't see more standalone is a functional one based on insurance. Like you said earlier, you know, you, you want to do something, but you can't get the coverage or that kind of thing. So there, there are coverage evolution issues here that happen. But I think a big part of it comes back to adopting the interventional model and making sure that patients know to ask for that. Hey, what's the best thing for me? If we if we ask a whole bunch of doctors, about 50% of docs are still in the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mode, right? If something gets worse, I'll change. But if nothing's worse, why change? Well, when we were talking about a trabeculectomy or a surgery that had risk, a little bit like talking about ALT that preceded SLT, we didn't do it as often because it things could go wrong. With MIGS, our risk is lower, our outcomes are better, and I think it's time for us to start really moving into that other direction. Now, what's interesting is I'm becoming, honestly, pretty anti-drop personally. Now, when I say anti-drop, what do I mean? It's like, well, I can't really cure glaucoma, right? There's no way to really get rid of it any more than that bypass cures you of having any cardiovascular disease, right? But if you have that bypass, your heart works better. You're just checking in with your cardiologist to make sure that the surgery fixed the issue and the tissue is restored. I think we're at that point in glaucoma where we have options that we need to discuss with patients earlier and offer standalone because a lot of them just don't know that that's a good viable option or at least discuss it with them, with family and knowing all of the other factors that come in there. Great example is that Parkinsonian patient I was talking about that was my neighbor. When his Parkinson's began, one of the conversations we had was once he got where he couldn't use drops, he said something that was kind of profound. And he said, well, this ain't going to get any better from here, is it? No, sir, it's not. So we understood he was never going to be better than that day. So the day for surgery isn't waiting until it's so bad that it got complex. The best outcome, the best patient for surgery is today's patient. And in his own way, he kind of personified what interventional glaucoma, what this management looks like, and that is that we we need to move this way up. Insurance has a lot to do with that. We do have to fight that battle. We have to be respectful of cost, but we have to look at the way that this is going to integrate into our systems. And I think it is a place where we also have to start teaching patients, and patients need to be asking doctors, hey, just tell me, these medicines are causing all sorts of trouble. I'm tired of my red eyes. I'm having problems with my beta blocker. I'm having this other issue. Let's talk about good options for you. There's also going to be plenty of patients where it's perfectly fine for them to say, I'm glad I know about that. But no, I already had cataract surgery. It went great, but I don't want another surgery in, until I need one. It's like, okay, let's, let's keep watching and we'll talk about that in the future. Walk us through how the procedure works, how they do the procedure, how long it takes. Is it painful? So Sure. There's a little variability depending on exactly which technique we're using. However, so for, for eye stent is, is much more straightforward. Um, when we're talking about eye stent, it's pretty, pretty, you don't want to say easy because it, this is a surgery and 
look, eye surgery is a little bit like playing banjo. It looks really easy when you watch somebody do it, but doing it yourself is a little trickier. But placing these stents relative to our other glaucoma surgeries, our old glaucoma surgeries, is much more straightforward. So now standalone is a little different. So when it's in combination surgery, any patient that's had cataract surgery, you know what that's like. So everybody's always nervous for their first surgery. But after they have their first one, they're going, all right, I got this. When do I do my second one? You know, modern microsurgery is amazing. A couple millimeter incision, a small, you know, implant lens placed that way for the cataract. Well, then what we're doing is through that same size incision, we're able to place stents that help drainage. Now, those stents work best uh, talking about those drains. You know, if we line up where that collector is, the pipe behind it, if we get it there, it's perfect. It really gets great results. If we're not a bullseye, sometimes we don't get as good a result, and there's no way to really know where those are. So when we actually evolved in one of the studies going from one to two stents, and as we did that, boy, that we got way better results in doing that. When we went to multiple stents, that's easier. So, but the procedure, or I'm sorry, it's better, but the procedure is the exact same. So it's just doing the same thing, you know, three times. And so as we're doing that, our, our outcomes get better, our pressures get lower. Now, the other procedures, they're still done through that same size incision, very small incision. We're not talking about a lot of pain. We're not talking about long recoveries. My way of usually describing this to, to patients is I tell you, look, hey, one of those things, whenever we talk surgery, the first thing you're worried about, we're not, there's no shots, no stitches, no pain. We don't like shot stitches and pain. So we're able to do that for the most part, very straightforward. Patients can return to work pretty quickly. The recovery is more like the recovery from a cataract surgery than the cover, recovery from one of these big glaucoma surgeries where the patient's having to be seen daily, the chance of getting blood leaking in the eye or the pressure too low is actually present. Within MIGS and particularly for stents and some of the other procedures, it's, it's actually quite low, very little bleeding. And so to the patient, it feels and looks a lot like cataract surgery, which we all know somebody's had that, so it's a lot less intimidating. So they're placed, explain exactly where they're putting the stent. So, so stent placement if we're talking about eye stent, when we're talking about that, if you can imagine, we've got that meshwork, that sponge we were talking about. Behind the sponge is a drainage system, and behind the drainage system, there are main drains. So we're basically placing that, and there's different stents that can do this in different ways. We've tried a bunch of different things. A few of these we no longer do because they were not good designs. Eye stent's been very elegant. So in its placement here, and when we're talking about a stent, I think it's very important. I, I wish I'd actually brought a screenshot for us to pop up. There is a, a fantastic older picture of one of the first generation eye stents sitting on a penny, right? And it's it's basically looks like it's it's Abraham Lincoln's eye, right? These are teeny tiny things, but when they're placed there, if we have resistance in that that meshwork, we're opening that up and creating a pathway where that can go through. So since that fluid can drain there easily back into that next set of drains, that removes that point of resistance. Now, where we place that along the line, we want that to be as close to possible to one of those main drains. So when we hit that, that's when we get our, our magic results. So placement within this is as, as straightforward as basically think of like a pin prick. And then like you talked about with the Durista, where we're pushing a, a button, placing it in line and making sure you, you don't want to be too far back or up. We want to be in the, the center there to where you're placing through. And that way we get that maximum drainage without creating inflammation or irritation. But and placement we, is fairly straightforward and reversible if it has to be. And trabectone, you're removing tissue. 
So when we're talking about trabectome or KDB, Kahook Dual Blade, I told you we love abbreviations. On those, it is a little bit more like shaving away the D part of that resistance. So we're kind of taking the top of that off, right? Now, that is a tool used to do an older uh, surgery. A surgery we've known about for years, goniotomy. The tools here are making that procedure better again. So it's not necessarily that the device is the procedure. It's that these devices help us do these procedures far better than in the past. Goniotomy has been used in pediatric glaucoma for decades, but it was never very effective because it was difficult to do, hard to predict, and scarring could become a problem. So now that we have devices that can do it, for instance, the, the Omni, I referenced that earlier, the Omni device can do the same thing in a slightly different way using, uh, imagine kind of threading a uh, your uh, string around your hoodie, all right, and then pulling it to open that meshwork up. It unroofs it and opens it this way rather than shaving it off or removing tissue. So they do this in different ways. Ultimately, that aspect of it is going to be the surgeon's decision and in some cases has changed at the time of surgery. One of the surgeons that I work with, he's actually really interesting. In some cases, we'll combine multiple of these at one time, but he said he can, as he starts a procedure, he realizes which one's going to do which way. And then so we started out doing an omni and then we realized, no, no, we're going to need that and a Zengel, a slightly more aggressive one that we use for more advanced for we need a lower pressure. So the we are intentional and customized not only in what surgery we're going to do and when we're going to do it, even how the surgery is done. So the number of stents, the arc of an SLT or how many degrees we're going to do with an omni procedure as we're doing that goniotomy or trabeculoplasty, all of these things are modifiable. Rather than just walking around with a sledgehammer and banging that eye to create a big vent in it, we're able to get what we need to get. The other thing is that in a lot of cases, these are repeatable. Depending on which thing we're doing, we can go back. And if we glaucoma is going to fight back. And if we look up five, six, ten years later, we're going, hey, we're we need to do something else again, we can still have those other options there rather than it being, okay, well, now we got to go get the sledgehammer out. And again, that technology is changing really rapidly. I think the ability to have it be minimally invasive, that's the part, the M and the I are the part that the patient cares about. It's not big and scary. But it also means that our risk is lower, which lets us pick this up earlier. And if well, we can prevent that cell death, we're way ahead of the curve. With Omni, we're combining canaloplasty with trabeculectomy. So how, does that, how does that work by using combining both of them? That is uh, one of those things that as you see it working, you're going, oh, I should have thought of that. It is uh, back to our plumbing analogy. So it uses a cannula, a little little fiber that is we're moving forward. So it has a sharpened tip that can be used to go through the spongy part, through the trabecular meshwork. And then you're able to advance a, a cannula through that. So that is akin to on the top part of your drain, kind of pushing it open. I mean, just kind of, is it just the little hair blob that's in the way? Or is it that the kids, you know, poured candle wax down it you're by not accident? Not a stent here. Not so in. no, in, in this case, you're physically opening it. There's not as, not really anything left behind in the same way that there would be in a stent where the stent actually remains in place and is made of metal. So this plastic cannula is being threaded through that system to open it up. And then we use a, a, a viscoelastic. It's a gel that we use during cataract surgery to open that back up. So that's the uh, foaming Drano, if you lack a better way to put it, but it does, it helps open that tissue back up. 
So that's no. the canaloplasty part of that procedure. And then the trabeculectomy part. Then that can be done with the same tool. So advancing that fiber through and pulling allows the surgeon to unroof that meshwork if they want to. Um, now, there's other devices that can help do these same things. Again, this is changing all the time. What's great about this, one of my surgeons said that we've had a couple of patients that had had stents, and we were, we were just not, at that point, we were only doing one, and we couldn't get them where we wanted to be. We can take different things from these different procedures and combine them to what that patient needs. And he would say that he could actually feel as he was advancing that cannula through, he's going, uh-oh, there's scar tissue or something in here. It's 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 resistance. And that's when you could literally audible at the time of the surgery in the middle of the surgery and go, well, rather than doing just this one piece, just the canaloplasty, I'm going to go ahead and do a little bit more of the trabeculectomy that I wanted to do, trabeculotomy that I wanted to do and unroof some more of that tissue versus in other times you get in and it's like, hey, this is this has gone really beautifully. I actually got for my my father-in-law was telling me about how, how he had glaucoma. Uh, he had a combo procedure and. I got a picture sent from the surgeon, a text. At that point, we were still using a dye to help light up this drainage system so we could see it during the surgery. And so he had one of his nurses take a picture of my father-in-law's eye during the surgery. And he said, we're going we're gonna to be great. And you could see the dye going out through all of this drain work because we'd opened everything back up. And his cataract surgery went from a narrower angle to a more open angle. But then his glaucoma surgery, his MIG surgery, opened up the drain and opened up the resistance from that sponge all at one time. That ability is magical. And I think to your point also is why standalone looking at more of these MIGS procedures as for patients who have already had cataract surgery, because of your five or 600 patients in your glaucoma patient practice, I'm assuming a lot of them have already had cataract surgery. So that, that gives us a new opportunity for those patients. You know, for the canaloplasty, the the uh, omni, you would think that after time it would scar back down. And that's, uh, that's a good question on some of this. We know in canaloplasty and for goteotomy and uh, trabeculotomy on some of these procedures, the, the studies that we're using on those were old and done in a different way. So we know that those lasted pretty well. The way that we're doing them now seems to do better. It's more elegant. But it does, I think, also tell you a part of the future. How long does this last? I don't know. There's probably some patients that if we do this, it's the only procedure they'll ever need. There's other procedures or other patients that within a year, they may end up having trouble again. And it is that glaucoma fights back. I actually was working with a surgeon years ago who used that. And I that always sticks in my head. And, and I think of that in the same way I think of that that cardio, that that bypass. You know, you may have a triple bypass and never have to go under the knife ever again. You may have a triple today and you end up having to have a quadruple two years later. Every single human being is different. And that, I think, just puts all the more weight on us to make sure that we're doing a good job diagnosing, treating, and modifying these factors to where if we're going to do a bypass, don't do it after that patient had a heart attack and their heart is damaged. Do it ahead of the time. Or even more importantly, to your point, change their diet years before to make sure that we're not, you know, loading them full of processed foods and vegetable oils that clog all that tissue up, that then damage it to where we can't fix it. The eye is in the same place nowadays where we know we can do a better job. We can intervene earlier. We can customize and titrate this. The surgeries don't have to be big and invasive. They don't have to only be when we're doing cataract surgery. And even in there, we can modify what we're doing. And as we see more technology coming, that's just going to get better and more choices available. 
As we finish up, what concerns do we have with the mix procedure? How well does it work? The, and then the Omni procedure and the, trabe the trabectome, does it lower pressure that much? Is it helping? Is it working? How well does it work? I'd and say other concerns. So I'd say kind of catching all of them effective uh, is one of those, it can be a frustrating term, right? Because we can have surgical success. But if the patient's goal was, I never want to touch medicine ever again or think about this, that can be elusive. So patients on no medicine versus reduction of medicine, uh, there's a lot of studies there. And depending on where they start out, where their pressure is, how many meds they're on, you know, we're looking at 40, 50% of patients being able to possibly be without medication if they were on one to two meds. So I think that we want to make sure we educate patients on that this is a positive thing. But I prefer to over, uh, I guess maybe under promise and, and uh, was it under deliver or over promise under deliver. So when it comes to that, I'd rather tell the patient, okay, best case scenario, we may get, get this and be done with meds for a period of time, but I don't want to over promise and tell them you're never going to use drops ever again after this. And that's for any of the procedures. So any more than I want to do an SLT and take a patient off every med and then have them come back with their pressure at 30. But I do think when we're looking at side effects, the stents and procedures like Omni have far less bleeding and quicker recovery than if, for instance, we're doing trabectome or Kahook dual blade. So KDB, since it's actually like a little, little cutting tool, there's more chance that it nicks a blood vessel and we get blood inside the eye. That takes a little while to recover from just because if blood gets in the eye, it takes time to get it back out and it can cause some side effects. So there is some risk involved with that. But for the most part, these procedures, the more we do them, the better we get at them. Um, I would say there's a bit of a learning curve. Uh, we are past all of that phase where our surgeons are very accomplished. Uh, the ability to choose which one matches this patient best. So for instance, a patient that is on a blood thinner that cannot come off a blood thinner, it's good to know that we may be able to choose stents for them and not stuck with just one, but we have, you know, we can put in multiples, we can do what we need to do versus, you know, doing uh, an omni, doing a canaloplasty on that patient uh, and maybe doing a smaller area versus a patient that you might choose trabectome or KDB. And again, this is the good news is this is a place where the communications between the doctors makes that so much better to know, hey, this patient is having trouble with med compliance or we're up and down or, or our, we're on all of these medicines and we're way too high. That tells us when to be aggressive or when we can actually just do what is a minor surgery and minimally invasive. Well, Dr. Chris May, I want to thank you for this tremendous comprehensive talk on glaucoma. Is there anything that we didn't say that we might have left out that you'd like to tell the audience? I, tell you, I, I think we went all over the place and covered just about everything in glaucoma you can. I think if nothing else, hopefully what we've said and, and brought the message out that more important than anything, get your eyes checked. Make sure that we're paying attention. If you find out that your family's at higher risk, be intentional about seeking good eye care. Eye doctors keep providing good eye care. And so, and as we start to learn to intervene earlier, this is a place where we're just going to get better and better. And I, I have a passion for it and I can get a little bit worked up by it, but it is, it is a place where the future is bright and it's a place where we can protect people. I'm excited. And Thanks for having me, by the way, a ton of fun. And if people want to learn more about you and know more about you, want to make an appointment, they do that. So, uh, my offices are in North Mississippi. I'm also a faculty at Southern College of Optometry. So you want to reach out to me. I'm old school, easy to find. 
Uh, Coldwater Vision Center is my primary practice. I one time got a letter written to Eye Doctor Coldwater, and it made it to the office. So, but uh, that is a place where uh, I, I live in the trenches, and I love it there. So, patient care is my passion. Dr. Chris May, thank you for joining me today. You're a wealth of knowledge, and you added a lot to to the uh, to our audience. You really you really helped them in the topic of glaucoma. Thank you for joining me today. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today.